how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 417, where I spoke with David and John Moscow, the father and son authors of From Scratch, adventures in harvesting, hunting, fishing, and foraging on a fragile planet. This book is based on this series by the same name. The goal is to reconnect, with, reconnect us with food that sustains our lives, along with experiences taking place over 20 countries that include milking a water buffalo to make mozzarella pizza, harvesting oysters in Long Island Sound, and honey from wild bees in Kenya, among others. In this wide-ranging interview, the writers talk about producing In the Heights from an unknown Lin-Manuel, how David was cast as young Josh in Big early in his career, creating digital ads for Bernie Sanders, the realities of making from scratch, making coconut moonshine, how the father and son co-wrote this book together, the problems with a physical distance and food production, and how to make career shifts based on your skill set. If it's your first time here, hit that subscribe button and make sure to go get my book, Ink by the Barrel, Secrets from Prolific Writers, over at BrockSwinson.com for free. That's the book and audiobook. I think I was a, a rambunctious child, and my parents were trying to find things, always looking for things that might engage me whether it was gymnastics or guitar or whatever. And I did two school plays in fifth and sixth grade and uh, really loved it. And so my mom found an open audition for a Jodie Foster film. It was like a newspaper ad uh, uh, for a cattle call. Hmm. It was Jodie Foster, John Turturro. It was called Five Corners, took place in the Bronx. So I went down, she took me there and they liked me and uh, gave my name to an agent. And then the agent brought me in and I remember uh, I read, they had some copy, some sides, they call it, um, for a movie that was auditioning at the moment. And I read them and they liked my read. And then they sent me out on auditions. Turned out it was really cool. Like nine months later, I went and I uh, went to the movies to see Stand By Me. <laughs> and my sides had been a, from, from oh, wow. audition for Stand By Me, which was so cool. Anyway. I auditioned for Kate and Allie, a reoccurring role. That was my first audition. Um, that was a, you know, a big sitcom in the eighties. And then my second role was for the movie big, but at the time it was Robert De Niro. So I was auditioning for the best friend. Okay. Then once you get, you know, a movie like big, you don't stop working until you decide to stop working kind of. Right. Uh, so I did that through high school. Then I took a break, um, thought about college then came back and did a Broadway show and jumped into sort of the independent movie scene in New York and had a theater company. And, um, and then one day my dad called me up and said that a friend of his, his son had written about 20 pages of music for a musical. Luis's kid, they were Luis and my dad were developing by a, a dual language school in New York. And when I listened to this kid's, you know, music and I was like, Oh no, this is a terrible idea. You know, family, friends, number one. Number two, nothing is worse than bad theater being trapped. You know, it reminds me of like coyotes trying to chew their arm off to get out of a, a trap. But <clears throat> I said, okay, I'll listen to it. 
So he brought his friends down and 10 minutes in, I was like, lock the doors. This is amazing. And his name was Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> and, and the play was in the Heights. So that was my first producing job, really. Mm-hmm. And I, I managed to, I went out to this woman, Jill Furman, whose dad, Roy Furman, produced Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. She had produced uh, Drowsy Chaperone, which was, I think, nominated for a Tony that year. And then Bernie Telsey, the legendary casting director of Rent, he's an old friend. I did a play with him when I was, I think one of the first plays I ever did was a play he directed. And um, so, yeah, I, I put all the ducks together. And, and then so... People who invested and people who didn't invest, you know, those people were like, I should have invested. What are you going to do next? So then I started producing and I really stepped out of from being in front of the camera to behind the camera. Mm-hmm. Produced about 27 films. Uh, won Tribeca a couple times. Um, went Was in competition at Cannes. Mm-hmm. We had films at Sundance every other year kind of thing. And then, you know, when the 2016 election was happening. I was working with the Bernie Sanders campaign doing a lot of digital ad. I was producing a lot of their digital ad stuff and uh, really looking at sort of how we could unify the country at a time when people were working really hard to divide it. Mm -hmm. I thought that I got stuck on this thing that food is something that no matter what the political wins are, you know, tacos rock and everybody loves tacos. The margarita is the most consumed cocktail in America, right? And and I don't think people were really tying that to the people who make it, right. not only who make Mexican food, but who are really in the kitchens of a lot of the restaurants in America, right? The hardworking people, the, the migrant farm workers. And and I, so I got this idea, like, what if we saw what people were actually doing? What if we did a documentary about how a taco was made, how a margarita was made? And it would be undeniable, you know, the hard work and the, and the pride. So my agents were like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> but if you make this a, a series mm. and every week you look at a different food culture, then that's something that would be cool. And they introduced me to, to Bourdain's company, 0.0 ZPZ and, and uh, Andrew Zimmern's company. And, um, and so we like ended up signing a deal with Zimmern and, and at travel channel. And then that fell apart. Then we were at Apple TV and then that fell apart and, you know, just like Hollywood. So we ended up on History Channel and FYI, which is A&E channels. And we did two seasons there. Mm. And what, what we found, my dad was co-writing episodes with me. Particularly, my dad has a long history of community activism, and like wicked smart. And so whenever we would like get into some you know, political discussion on the, on the show, I would reach out to him and be like, hey, can you write me up something about, mm. you know, you got 30 seconds to do apartheid. <laughs> and so it's like, holy, holy smokes. But we kept running into this thing where like the stories we wanted to tell were deeper mm. than that 30 seconds on apartheid. Like, What is the effect of apartheid on food culture uh, in modern South Africa? Right. And so same thing was I didn't catch fish in the Philippines. I went out to make fish sauce, patis, which is a f- fundamental ingredient there. Couldn't catch a fish. And on the show, it's like, oh, no, I'm not going to be able to bring the chef back the fish. I'm supposed to get them. But in the world, it's like, why Why didn't we catch any fish? And the captain was like, this happens a lot. And mm-hmm. his dad used to catch 10 times the amount of fish. And, and his grandfather caught 10 times the amount of fish for his dad. And so my dad and I were kicking around these sort of little sticking points that, that 
you know, and so we started doing research on it. At the same time, someone reached out to say, hey, would you write a book? And um, they reached out and were like, you know, we'll get you a ghostwriter and they'll just be based on the show. And But I, I wanted it to be something, you know, if you're going to write a book. I've never written a book, so I wanted it to be something. So I reached out to my dad and, and I asked him very politely if he would write the book with me. Right, dad? That's one version. Another version is that you told me that we were going to write this book. <laughs> so, yeah. So then we, uh, we took a lot of what we had been kicking around during the show. I mean, to get the 30 seconds on whatever, you know, opening monologue you're going to do or closing monologue, there's actually pages and pages of yeah. different paths. So that was a real, I think that was the, we already had, you know, a third of the book there. Um, so yeah so that's that's the snapshot journey from little boy from big to this book so that's kind of a quick version it, it sounds like when you tell it there's like luck involved but obviously you're you're making some really good choices how do you think about making decisions and some of those things for especially if you're transitioning from acting to producing to you know the like shifts like that well there is luck involved and there are you know decisions fraught with anxiety that you, you know, leaping out of the acting, you know, pot into the producing fire is scary. Um, one of the, one of the impetuses is that I really didn't have anything else that I knew how to do, right? Like other people can go and, you know, they have backups, but I had been in an actor since I was 12 years old. So what, what skills did I have? Well, I can go into rooms and I can talk about story mm. and I can, you know, uh, uh, convince people that I can tell a good story. And so that helps with producing. Um, I think that uh, you have to remove your ego a lot, which is hard as an actor. Cause a lot of acting is, is about being, being an actor is an e is a lot of ego. I mean, you're out there, you know, Brad Pitt is like, Wishing you were Brad Pitt is like wishing you were the king of England, right? <laughs> you have to be delusional to this level of like, yes, right. I deserve to be the face that million, billions of people think is the coolest guy, right? And so you walk around with that. You have to have it. And so cutting loose from that is all hard. That's the first challenge, that you can be humble and say, all right, um, I might need to do a Kickstarter <laughs> to get this movie of mine financed, right? Or, you know, it's one thing when you have Disney or 20th Century Fox promoting your movie, but then when you become an indie producer, you know, it is, it's a grind. It's like, how do we take this small business and get people to buy product, right? Mm -hmm. So once you start looking at it that way um, and you remove the ego from it, it's very freeing and there's no, as an actor, lots of things were beneath me just with the way of the nature of the business, right? Like you, you, as an actor, you get to Sundance in a small part in a movie and now you have to be the lead in the next movie that goes to Sundance. Right. And, um, but on the other side of it, if you're just being as a producer, if you are, facilitating and helping other creatives then 
you just do whatever you can to make sure that that's going to be a successful uh, um, film or TV show. Um, so it's a mindset thing. Um, and, uh, and it also, I think when you're in the room with people <clears throat> and you suddenly have made this shift in your minds in mindset, people feel it because everybody's looking for answers. Even the big execs, they're hoping somebody has the answer. And so if you come in and you've kind of like have this brutal Buddhist humbling, you know, and, and I'm not saying that I'm there, but if you, if you are able to, um, put your ego to the side a bit, people feel that, you know, and if you're there for the work, people feel that as well. People want to be associated with people who want to work, who do work. Right. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, yeah. Did did some of this mental shift come from moving to more like fictional pieces to nonfiction? It seems like even with that fishing story, I remember an episode of Bourdain's show where they were faking something. They were faking like something with scuba diving, and he like, hell no, walked off. I feel like you're seeing that as well. Like, oh, what's the reality of this? You're open to what's happening. Can you talk a little bit about that? Did that help you with that? mental shift from like, Oh, I've got to know my lines for fiction versus being open to nonfiction. Yeah. Well, you hit the nail on the head. I think nonfiction is super freeing, especially because I'm not an expert. The whole show is about me being somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. And I go in and I learn from experts. I lean on them. And so I want to, it's not about me. We had a similar situation where we went on a rabbit hunt in Croatia and like midway through the hunt, we realized that this guy never expected me to sh- to, to hit a rabbit. <laughs> and and I said, you know, how am I going to be able to cock this gun and shoot? I saw, we saw a rabbit. We scared when it took off. I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to cock this gun and shoot. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. I have a dead rabbit. I placed it over there. <laughs> I was like, no, man, this is, we can't do this. <laughs> so what I really wanted to know was how hard it was to shoot rabbits. Right. And he was a hunter mm. and I, I wanted to know, um, about him. And, uh, he was a very theatrical guy anyway. So I think he's, he saw like the show, but when you are there to tell other people's stories, it takes a lot of the onus off of you. Um, so, you know, I think my job is to show the world what a layman's look at food production is like, when you know when you don't know what you're doing or cooking and then i'm supposed to be funny a little bit a little bit funny <laughs> and then a little bit grumpy and ornery like this is a pain in the butt because i don't know what i'm doing i think the audience likes to see me get beat up a little bit so i got almost drowned in uh sardinia and uh everybody seemed to really like that episode <laughs> <laughs> I came back to the, they, they had droned it because the waves were too rough. We were fishing. The waves were too rough for me and this free diver to have a camera operator with us in the water. So the camera operator was operating a drone off the boat. So when I nearly drowned, I came back to the boat. They were like, yay, that was incredible television. I was like, oh my God, (laughs) but it was incredible television. Um, So yeah, I think, I think, uh, you know, leaning into the fact that I'm just really excited about what people are doing. Like 
I don't know how people do any of this stuff. I was just in Utah at a talk with a scientist who had sort of rediscovered the um, the oldest domesticated plant, which is a potato called the Four Corners Potato. And I say rediscovered because it had been a uh, foundational ingredient for the Diné, uh, the Diné, which the Spanish call, who the Spanish call Navajo. And then when, you know, European genocide occurred on Native Americans, it's, they, it sort of disappeared. But it was found again. She found, uh, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Lauterbach found these starch grains on a grinding stone from 11,000 years ago and wondered, like, what what is this starch? They were expecting to find seeds or plants. And then they found out, they heard that the, the valley had been known as Potato Valley by Civil War soldiers. And then her husband was walking down the hill from the site and found a small potato plant. And these potatoes are this big, like marbles. And they deduced that these potatoes had been moved from Arizona to Utah and thus making them domesticated, thus making them likely. You know, scientists are very like, they caveat a lot of stuff, right? I can say it is the oldest domesticated plant, but mm. they, they won't. Um, so anyway, I, I'm just, you know, I think it's a wonderful job to get to um, meet these people doing incredible stuff around food. Um, and it, it makes me see the ties that bind us through mm. food, you know. And I think that when you're talking about <clears throat> nonfiction being freeing, that the interplay between doing the series and doing a book is also really interesting mm -hmm. because, you know, in the series, you know, the medium is the message that, you know, you've got X number of minutes and it has to be entertaining as well as informative mm -hmm. and it has to be visual. And in the book, um, you can go much more into depth. So it's not only, you know, as David was saying, you know, what's the impact of apartheid on food, but it's also that apartheid didn't come out of no place. It was, you know, another form of stuff that had been going on, you know, ever since, you know, the Portuguese first landed in South Africa. So you can, um, and you have, you know, you really have, um, you are free. You're free to tell the story as best you can and to get as much information across in as, not entertaining, but informative and accessible way that you can. It's, tell me a little about the writing process. So it sounds like just from what we said so far, maybe David may come up with some ideas being there and passes those to John. John's kind of maybe a master of footnotes and starts digging in. Tell me a little bit about how you guys have conversations about food and how that equals a book. Well, I'll start and then David should you know chime in. I mean, we both wrote different sections within a chapter and then merged them together at the time that we, and talking all the time, um, because obviously it was, you know, David's experiences and some we did some, we went back and did some interviews together with some of the people that he'd met with and talked with before. So we got some new information, but, you know, it was his story in that sense. Um, but I, I did do a lot of the background research 
and a lot of the footnotes and, and that kind of thing. And we also have very different writing styles. Um, David's is, seems to me, is much, um, much more relaxed, much more conversational. Um, whereas one of the other things I do is I write grants. And so, you know, going back to, what was it, Sergeant Friday with just the facts, ma'am, you know, that's, that's more my style. And people have told us that they find that it meshes pretty well. So um, I think it worked. Did you want to add or detract from that? No, that's that's. Um, I I think he explained it really well. And and one of the wonderful things about doing this interplay, handing it back and forth in ways, is that <clears throat> we would both sort of edit each other's along the way, which spurs you know you get stuck someplace, and then someone comes in and is like, "Well, you overwrote this. Why don't you cut these things out?" And then you're like, "Oh, this is perfect." And um, so that was really amazing. And I just remember that like. We got to chapter eight and and I was like, I called my agent and the book agent and I was like, did we really promise them 10? This is insane. I don't know. I What, what are we going to do? And then it was Finland. Finland was driving me nuts. And my dad just, well, I think we both really, really like Finland. Finland is doing some wonderful things. The, in the show, we went to Finland because... They're always listed as like the happiest country or one of the happiest countries in the world. And and their education system is one of the best. So the question on the show was, uh, how did their relationship with food and nature, does that have anything to do with how happy and smart they are? And so my dad really, you know, wanted to look at Finnish history and see how they got to this place. Um, they do some really wild things there, stuff I never... They have a thing called every every man's rules or every person's rules, where um, basically trespassing does not exist. You you are allowed to go travel onto someone's property and camp out uh, as long as you're not right next to their house. But you can go fishing, you can camp, you can hike through. Um, and we just were really smitten with what kind of country, what kind of community that is that would allow that. It means probably things that are, are working really, really well there. Um, and, and we wondered like, how far away are we here from, from that? Right. Um, and so, yeah, so my dad really jumped in to the incredible, um, research on sort of the history of Finland so much so that I did a, I had done another podcast with this Finnish historian who said that my dad's, um, uh, history of Finland was the most succinct, truthful history that this historian had ever read. So it's just wow. awesome. And that occurs a lot in the, um, and then, you know, <clears throat> I, like my dad said, I do have a very conversational, relaxed style. And so sometimes if we get a little, we get a little um, too heady, I'll jump in. And my wife also, my wife and, and my mom, uh, my dad's wife, um, uh, also play roles where they'll read stuff and say, um, I almost fell asleep. <laughs> so then you'd be like, okay, <laughs> never mind. Let's back that out. Uh, or, or my mom will be like, that wasn't how it happened. <laughs> I'll be like, mom, it's how I thought it happened. It's my truth. So anyway, it, it was a, it was a, uh, it was a family affair. It was lovely. And I wouldn't give up the experience. I mean, what an incredible, um, to have the 
reason to call my dad every morning and bother him and be like, you didn't send the email last night, but, <laughs> um, but no, just to have an excuse to, to work with him was yeah. wonderful. And vice versa. Very much vice versa. I mean, from, from a parent's point of view, you know, what's more fun than that your kid, you know, actually wants to work with you and, and, and to be able to have really, you know, meaningful conversations, um, you know, with your kid. <sighs> Yeah, I've lost some grandparents. I definitely advise people to go interview their parents, their grandparents. You'll find out things you don't know. Um, tell me like another. So from scratch, anyone who reads this is going to learn a lot about different cultures, different foods. What are some through lines you saw? I mean, things like it's good to know your own culture. Cooking from scratch is healthier. What are some like kind of across the board things you see that especially we in America are going away from? Well, I feel like um, when you get into food production, it really is like this onion where you're peeling away these different sections. And at the heart of it is will humanity survive is like that's the overarching. Um, but it, it, you know, food producers are on the front lines of, of global climate change, but also economic justice. Um, one of the things I, I kept running up against is sort of how we treat farmers and people in food production has become, you know, worse and worse over time. The further, the more sort of distant we are from where our food comes from, yeah. the more we unconsciously consume, uh, the worse we can treat the people who do, who make our food. So it used to be that, you know, the butcher lived in town. If he wasn't making enough money, you knew. And that's sad. Fred needs to earn more money. But now it's so far away that we can, pick migrant workers out of the country when it's not time to harvest or pay them nothing. Or when COVID happens, force them to work in, even though they're all dying in these meat packing uh, factories. So, and, and then, you know, you see that um, we're all bound, you know, as Americans, I think a lot of us go around thinking, you know, I did this on my own. I live on an Island, you know, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, but it takes 80 people to make a slice of pizza. So, I'm sorry. If you eat pizza, you're not by yourself and <laughs> you need to think about the larger community. Um, and we also see that sort of well, our health is affected by this, right? This unconscious consumption where food is cheaper and cheaper. Um, it hurts the animals. It hurts the people who make it, but it hurts us too, right? Like the fact that we can pull up to drive throughs and get a paper bag and eat it and not think about that. And that we've lost the sitting at the table with family. Um, and that food really is a, uh, uh, <clears throat> it's not only sort of sustenance for your heart, but it's sustenance for your mind too. like discussing where this comes from, how we harvested it. Um, my boy has traveled with me. He's four and a half, almost five now. And he's traveled with me on two seasons and he decided he was going to become vegan, which is like, what the heck? He and his friend Harlow at school, because he told all the kids that hamburgers were made from ground up cows. And they were like, <laughs> and uh, so he decided he was going to be vegan. Now that's, that conversation doesn't happen unless you are discussing sort of what it is um, that we're making here. Right. I think, I think the intentionality um, which is basically a one word summary, I think, of some of what you've been saying that, um, you know, what 
you know, different people are going to make different food choices. Some are going to be vegan. Some will be vegetarian. Some will eat poultry and fish, but not red meat. You know, some will eat pork, some won't. But, and everybody isn't going to make the same decision necessarily. But if you are thinking about what you're doing and you're thinking about how food comes to your plate, then you're also thinking about, for example, factory farming and what the impacts are. Um, you know, we've had lots of discussions about hunting because um, I don't come, you know, from a hunting family at all. Um, you know, uh, David's mom, you know, grew up uh, in Montana and uh, her family hunted for subsistence a lot of the time. Um, and, you know, as David was going around, you know, he would find out that in Texas, you can, you know, be shooting wild boar from helicopters, you know, um, is, is that hunting? Uh, and what does it mean for an animal to, you know, be, you know, free and then suddenly get shot and killed versus, you know, going through a nightmare of a life at a factory farm. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, being slaughtered, literally, you know, and figuratively slaughtered. So um, I think as soon as you start thinking about it, um, it just, as David was saying, sort of looking at an onion, mm. each just sort of uh, unwraps the peel even more. Yeah, I've heard some, that's a wild debate, too, because I know the boars are eating food or something, and then they're shooting them. It's, it's crazy, all those things that have so many sides on everything else. That was great, guys. Anything else you want to say about the book that we missed? I think that there are there are some great recipes in the back that you won't find other places. We literally travel around the world to the top chefs on the planet, and we ask them for sort of like not the ones that end up in their cookbooks. So these mm -hmm. are... And there and a lot of them are based on the idea that we have made some of this stuff from scratch. So like um Marguerite uh Marguerite Mansky, who is a James Beard Award winning chef or nominated chef, she made um a milk punch, a coconut milk punch um cocktail, which I made moonshine from coconuts. So I had to learn how to ferment and distill coconut. Uh, liquor called Lumpenog. And then I made coconut milk. And then I, so I made coconut sugar. So it was a from scratch made cocktail. That's awesome. And then we blended up mango in it. So there are a lot of really cool, um, the best pizza dough in the planet from Domichele in Naples. They gave us their pizza dough recipe, which is like, wow. Um, and then there's little tips along the way, like cooking tips, like you know, don't crack an egg on the side of a bowl, crack it on a flat surface and you won't get shells in your, in your uh, recipe. Or uh, one of the really, sorry to interrupt, but one of the really important ones I think is that it turns out that with potatoes and rice, that if you cook them and then put them in the refrigerator for 12 hours or whatever, the um, glycemic index um, goes way down. So for people with diabetes who love, potatoes and rice, like myself, for example, um, which you, you aren't supposed to eat fresh, essentially, but if they get chilled, then then you can eat them. You can reheat them. You can reheat them. And, reheat them, absolutely. and I just wanted to add, um, just because you mentioned um, boars, I think the other thing that really comes through is this really is the anthropocentric age. This really is a world created and managed by people. Uh, the boars are there because people introduced them 
they wanted them for hunting. Now they're creating all sorts of chaos. Now it's a question of what you do about it. And so it isn't only what individual choices we make in terms of intentionality, but um, it really is societal choices. And we have the power to, to save ourselves and to save other species, or we have the power to just not do it, which is gonna have disastrous results. It's, it's, it's our will. I was at a book talk at the Natural History Museum in Salt Lake on Wednesday, and someone got up at the end and was like, what about science? Can't science save us? What about aquaculture? And I said, at this point, it's not, it has nothing to do with science. It's, it is, can we decide, you know, there was a time when our greed, when our need to overconsume, humanity's need to overconsume was a survival mechanism. Mm. Now, in fact, science, you know, the fish have no chance against our science. And if we want to have seas that have fish in them, we, human beings, need to make this decision. And, or else we're going to disappear too. <laughs> so there's two sides to it. Do we want the fish to stay alive? And also, do we want to stay alive? Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. If it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.